1: When people ask the Dalai Lama, is Buddhism a religion, he answers, yes it is. Then they ask, what kind of religion is it? He responds, my religion is kindness. According to the Buddha, the path of kindness is the path of happiness. Easier said than done, we might say. Imagine how, simply by practicing mindfulness, not mindlessness, concentration and effort, we change our life for the better. This provides the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Sylvia Borstein. Sylvia Borstein is a co-founding teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California, and a senior teacher at the Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts. She has a doctorate in psychology and is the author of It's Easier Than You Think. That's funny, you don't look Buddhist. Pay attention for goodness sake, practicing the perfection of the heart, Buddhist path of kindness. And happiness is an inside job, Practicing for a joyful life. Join us for the next hour as we explore the path of kindness and living a more joyful life with our guest, Sylvia Borstein. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Sylvia, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. It's nice to be with you again. So, we talked before the interview, you were telling us this wonderful story about what happened to you this morning on the way driving here. So could you tell us that story? It's a great story.
2: Of course. Um, I thought about it, and uh, I realized I wanted to tell it again just because it had moved my heart so much, and also because it's relevant to really what I hope uh, this new book says. Really, uh, it presents an optimistic view of uh, the essential good nature of human beings. When the mind is clear, we are kind, just as you said, so I drove here from, uh oh, an hour and a half away this morning, and as I left my home, I stopped into a uh, coffee shop. I parked right outside a coffee shop in uh, downtown San Rafael, California, and uh, just as I pulled in, I noticed that at the next corner... There were four or five police cars drawn up, and you know how it is, you always look to see what's happened, and, uh, they, uh, there were, oh, maybe half a dozen more little, perhaps, police people grouped around a man who they'd, um, taken into custody, I suppose, who was sitting on the curb, as sometimes a person is. But this man was completely naked. And sitting on the curb. And I noticed that the police was standing at some deferential distance. It didn't seem like an upset scene. They seemed to be talking to him. They'd parked the cars in a way I thought provided a, some amount of, um, uh, discretion for this person at the, at the curb. And I went in and I got my coffee. And as the proprietor of the shop was helping me with the coffee, I pointed out the police cars down the street and I said, uh, uh, There was a man who's completely naked. And uh, the proprietor said, Oh, yeah, I think I know who that is. He's not mentally well. And I said, I I had supposed that. And uh, so I walked out of the shop, I took my coffee, I got in my car. And as I was backing up and beginning to pull out, I noticed the proprietor of the coffee shop come out of the shop and walk down the street and cross over to where the police were gathered around this man. And over his arm, he had what looked like a pile of towels from his shop I suppose perhaps they were tablecloths perhaps they were towels but clearly he was bringing something to wrap this man in and you know as I tell you the story now Michael I start to cry again about it I was in the car and I started to cry I called my husband who I thought was I knew was in his car and he wasn't there and I needed someone to tell it to so I called my son and found him and told it to him and now I'm telling it to you because at the same time that it touches me so much that I cry, it moves me enormously. It uh, picks up my spirit and my resolve to really come, um, to be made aware again of how genuinely good people are. How our fundamental motivation is to act with compassion and kindness. Oh, yes, that person isn't well. I'll bring some towels.
1: For, for every act that you see like that, there's a million acts of kindness that are not reported. Right. And that
2: they make you feel good when you hear about yes, them. Yes, exactly. When you read about them or you hear about them or you discover it in yourself, uh, that, and, and by the way, I want to include one's own self as a recipient of one's own good feelings of kindness and compassion because I think that, um, um, maybe when we talk about establishing a bond of compassion and kindness, we think right away of with other people or with life itself. I like to think of holding our own selves in good esteem uh, and uh, discovering when we're at a distance from our own goodness as well, and reestablishing that. Yes.
1: Well, it's interesting. Uh, we were talking before about in writing this book that at some point you um, you really decided not to write it. You you backed out of it and and. Something happened. Tell us that story.
2: Well, I will. I, I'll tell you the story that started me on writing the book, and then that book that that story fits in after that. Okay. Because I had in mind. Well, here's how it started, actually, and the book actually starts this way. I don't have it in front of me, but I know it by heart. It's a. It's really a, a story that woke me up to what I really wanted to say. I was sitting at my computer uh, typing. And the phone rang, and it was my friend Martha calling uh, to tell me that uh, the news that her brother Jack, who I knew was ill, uh, had taken a turn for the suddenly much worse. And uh, uh, I know Jack a little bit. I know know who he is and about his family. But he lives at a distance, and Martha had gone back east to visit him. Martha's my very dear friend. So she called to say Jack was worse and I said what I thought were compassionate things to say and uh, then we hung up the phone and I found that I was quite glad to turn back to my computer because I uh, I remembered that I'd had what, was, uh, I, what I'd thought was a really good thought just before the phone had rang and when I turned back to the computer I'd forgotten what that good thought was and I heard my mind think, So inconvenient of Jack to take a turn for the worse just today. And as I thought that, I felt my heart actually wince at that thought. What what is that, really? So I turned off the computer. I turned off the computer. I moved away from it. I looked out the window. I lit a candle. I thought about Jack. I thought about his family. I looked out my window, and I thought about... My family, who what that time was all well and hoped that they continue well. I thought about my friends who were well and wished them well. I thought about the people I knew other than Jack who weren't well and wished them well. In in essence, uh, I found after a while, I was beginning to say the phrases that are part of... Uh, uh, loving-kindness liturgy, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering and think of this one and that one and the other one. And uh, I remember it was uh, the fall of the year, so that I was looking at the flowers out on my deck in their sort of last gasp of being alive, and I thought about how short everyone's lifespan and everything's lifespan is. And how appreciative I was for being still in my life and having these moments in which I could feel so intensely about what was meaningful and dear to me. And I was aware, I had the thought, well, now you can turn around and go back to the computer and continue to write. But I was aware that no impulse in me actually arose to go back to the computer and continue to write. And what I thought about is what I am happiest doing is thinking thoughts of appreciation and consolation and connection and kindness that I think my mind or my heart or my mind heart is happiest in that sort of caring connection. And I think that that's what we're built to be. When our mind is not preoccupied with some self-serving thing, that was a wonderful thought, I've got to get it written down. When we're not preoccupied with self-serving, ego-driven things, we are connecting we're compassionate animals. We connect, and it's that those connections that, for me, really uh, invigorate my life and give it meaning. And so, I thought to myself, I want to write a book about that. I want to write a book about the point of practice is not to keep the mind unconfused because that's not going to work. We're going to keep getting confused, startled, broadsided by life all the time, not just by life and death events, but I'm late for getting somewhere or I forgot to bring this or that that I needed with me or whatever it is. We're going to be continually broadsided by events. So it's not about not getting confused. It's about recognizing that I've become confused and then doing something uh, not always uh, light a candle or turn around, but do something to reestablish the clarity of the mind that enables my own innate goodness to re-manifest itself. And that's what I think the lifelong of practice is about.
1: I'm thinking as you were speaking that it's almost as if as we um, take action, as we think we've got it together, uh, the universe reminds us, well, do you really have it together? Yeah. yeah. And then the
2: story that you asked me to tell is about, so then I proceeded to write a book about how to get your mind back together when it's become confused. And I chose the uh, mindfulness and concentration and effort, which are the three middle practice parts of the Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught for keeping the mind clear and the heart available. And halfway through the book, I gave up. I became, um, I found I was uncharacteristically tongue-tied. I love to write. I enjoy writing. I enjoy talking and telling stories. And I couldn't do it. And what I was writing didn't sound like me. It sounded forced. And what I was writing seemed like the point I was trying to make kept slipping out of focus. And uh, I had... Uh, my life was became complicated. My very dear friend Martha, who had called me to begin with, took ill herself and became very sick. In my family, there were problems with, as there are, I have a large family and lots of children and grandchildren. and There were se- severe enough problems to really occupy my mind. And I was pushing myself, because I had a deadline to meet with my book, and it just wasn't happening. And I gave up. I realized I can't do this. And I, uh, I, I made, I actually offered to buy my contract back, not continue with it. And I met with my editor, um, uh, who listened to, uh, my whole story, he said, whatever you need to do, I'll support you. But then I said, I'm, you know, appreciating that. I want to tell you what's been going on. And I talked about my friend and my family and the things that had, you know, were overwhelming me. I got all finished, and uh, in, the matter, in the manner, in the manner of both a wonderful editor and a really good dharma teacher, wisdom teacher, she said to me, "I'd like to suggest that you wait a while. Everything passes. This uh, inability, this confusion that your mind finds itself in, will probably pass." What I said to her is, "I can't. My mind can't move, and I've lost my appetite to write." She said, your appetite will probably come back. Everything changes. And it did. And I wrote a much better book than I would have beforehand.
1: I'm speaking with Sylvia Borstein. She's the author of Happiness is an Inside Job, Practicing for a Joyful Life. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm speaking with Sylvia Borstein, and uh, we're talking about how we can live a more fulfilling life. And one of the things you said, Sylvia, was you are talking about how that it's uh, we're, we're dealing with practicing, doing effort, concentration, mindfulness, or actually effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And that comes out of the Eightfold Path, and you might want to mention the Eightfold Path uh, for people that may not be familiar with it.
2: I'm happy to do that, you know. Uh, the cornerstone of what the Buddha taught, and really, uh, it's a cornerstone for all the lineages of Buddhism, is what's called the Four Noble Truths. The uh, the essential awareness that life is continually challenging. It's meant to be. It's uh, by its very nature, because things are changing all the time. We are continually challenged to adapt to that kind of change. And uh, the second of the Four Noble Truths, which is, it's the mind's insistence that things be other than what they are that actually, uh, create suffering in the mind. That actually is suffering in the mind. Things are what they are because of so many causes including what we do, but the things that happen to me in my life, a lot has to do with what I do and how I behave, but really I'm not separate from this whole world and how that behaves, so that what's happening in any moment is the result of so such a vast karmic influences that I can certainly act in this moment and say the next moment will be different, Uh, because of many things including what I do but this moment is how it is and the difference in the mind between saying this is how it is what should I do now and saying, this shouldn't be the way it is, it has to be different. That's really what the Buddha was naming as suffering in the mind, the extra tension in the mind when it cannot accept the truth of the moment. And the third of the Four Noble Truths is the truth that peace is possible, peace of mind is possible under all circumstances. And that's such an amazing thing to say to people. It was, for me, such an amazing thing to learn that... um I didn't need to be pleased in order to be happy. We always think of happy as pleased, you know, I, I'm happy that this is happening. And it might be a, a matter of linguistics or uh, semantics. But what the Buddha was meaning is that the mind does not have to be caught in suffering, even if we're not pleased. Um, a young woman who's a student at Spirit Rock, young in her 40s, has recently been diagnosed with, uh, um, MS. And, uh, in the, in the height of her career and the middle of her life. And she's certainly not pleased to have that happen. But she said, my practice becomes so important to me. She said, my father, who's a woodworker, has made me a huge plaque that I have on the wall of my bedroom out of wood with my favorite Dharma expression. And the expression that she has on her wall is, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And for the mind to be able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And then to take every possible step to make one's life as fulfilling and as comfortable as one can, but not to fight with truths about which we are not in control. That's the third noble truth, that it's a possibility of human beings to develop a sort of mind that can do that. Peace is possible. And the fourth noble truth is the practice path to establish that ability. To return the mind to a place of equanimity when it's been challenged. That, uh, practice path has eight parts. The first three parts have to do about more, with morality, with behaving in the world, with wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. They have to do with how we are with other people and, and with the world and the planet itself. The last two parts of the path, wise understanding and, uh, wise, um, Attitude have to do with, uh, really thinking and dedicating one's life, uh, their mental, um, attitudinal kinds of path parts, all developable. The three middle parts are internal to oneself. No recourse to wisdom, wise understanding, or wise attitude needs to be available because when you're upset, you don't have a recourse to that wisdom. And it doesn't have anything to do with morality. You can, this is you do this by yourself, not in how you're acting in the world. They are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And they are all internal mental behaviors. So that's why the book is called Happiness is an Inside Job. That's the part that you do by yourself.
1: You have access to something that I think most of us cover up. We, we're so busy in life that we we don't have that access. What about that?
2: Well, I think you're exactly right, Michael. There's a very there's one particularly important notice, uh, an inside notice that I think is really the 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 crux of the whole thing. Uh, I'm uh, it, it, I'm happy to tell people I've written it in the book that uh, here I have 30 years of practice and. Sometimes people imagine 30 years of practice. You must be a equanimous all the time. They say, how wonderful it must be. People ask this sometimes when I'm teaching and they don't know me. I'm in some other city and they say, in all, you know, in all uh, lovely candor, they say, how is it to be peaceful all the time? I say, I wish I knew, you know. <laughs> I wish I knew. I've I'm been practicing. On it. I'm working on it. I have 30 years of practice and. I get annoyed, I get angry, I get lustful, I get envious, I get demoralized, I get irritated, I get everything that everybody else gets. And uh, I consider my practice to be an enormous success because what's different about me now than 30 years ago is it doesn't take me as long as it used to to realize I'm in trouble my mind has become confused by all of these feelings, which are normal and natural feelings that continue to come up in people as long we're alive, for goodness sake, and then will continue to come up in me for the whole rest of my life. And I notice that something has happened that has now confused my mind and really... Interrupted my ability to hold myself in compassion or anybody else. And it's that interruption of connection, which is really for me the cause of suffering. It's the definition of suffering. I continue when those, when those things are going on for me and I'm mad about something or I'm upset about something. I, I listen to the stories my mind tells this shouldn't be happening. It's not fair. It shouldn't be like this. Mm-hmm. If only it were like that. And I listen to, you know, the, it might, cause the mind has commentary about anything and the commentary is complicating it. And the stories go on and on, and they feed all those stories until I can stop for a moment and say to myself, I really do say this to myself. Other people can use different words if it works for them. But I catch myself suddenly, and I say, Sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Stop. Take a breath. Take another breath. Let's think this over. Let's figure out what we can do. Surely there's something we can do better. But it's really very important that I stop the commentary, it's not fair, it shouldn't be happening, and say to myself instead, wait a minute, what's the truth? I'm in pain. Because all those are painful states, envy and irritability and anger, and they're all painful. Uh So... And I really do say sweetheart. It's important to say sweetheart. I tell people you don't have to say sweetheart if that's not a good word for you. You could say honey or dear or you could say your own name if you wanted to.
1: You don't say you jerk.
2: No, that's exactly (laughs) it. Because I want to make it clear. If I say to myself, sweetheart, you're in pain, it means it's not a mistake that I'm in pain. I'm a human being. When things happen and I wanted so much for it to be otherwise, I'm in pain. We're supposed to be. I don't know, maybe when I began to meditate, and this is a long time ago, but I think for a while I had the idea that somehow if I meditated well enough or long enough, I'd rise above pain and say, well, things come and go. But it's not like that. Things do come and go, and we lament their passage. And the fact that people dear to us die, the fact that the people that we love get sick or struggle, it's painful the fact that the world is in such desperate trouble. You know, one of the things that I, I, one of the commentaries in my mind when I'm irritated or lustful or uh, annoyed or frightened or whatever, I get even if I let the commentary go long enough, I even get annoyed at myself that I'm giving so much airtime to my particular tiny stories when the world is such a in a terrible. Shape. I mean, I think to myself, if I'm going to despair, I could at least despair about the whole world, not about my particular plans not coming to fruition. But those are all stories, and the basic truth in any, whether it's my story or the whole world story, is I'm in pain.
1: You meant thirty years ago. Thirty years ago, you went to your first uh, uh, Vipassana workshop. I did, and it was in I think it was in Santa Clara County. And I remember a story in one of your books uh, where you said. It was just, what were you doing there? It was so terrible. And, and you were making up all these stories about what you were going to tell your husband, <laughs> Seymour, who got you to go there. <laughs> and, and it was just this awful experience that you had. And say, can you just, and, and then somehow, uh, you were, uh, you went back.
2: I did. So you know what, Michael? I think about this a lot. I actually have a little photo that was taken at the end of, um, Oh, you know, I put that photo on my website. it was the commemorating my very first retreat, and i'm in the if people look at that photo, it is me in the front row on the left hand end, thirty years younger than now but uh uh, my husband had in fact urged me to go. He dropped me off and was going to pick me up, so I had no way to escape. It was totally. <laughs> It was in a private house. There were oh, maybe somewhere between fifteen and twenty people. We slept in two rooms on the floor on mattresses on the floor, men and women together. I wasn't used to that sort of thing. And I certainly wasn't used to sitting hours on end and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. I didn't get the instructions. I had a monumental headache because no one told me there wasn't going to be any coffee. And I, without <laughs> caffeine, I had a monumental headache the whole time. I was waiting for Seymour to come and pick me up so that I could get some coffee, so, yeah. get, get some coffee and also tell him, what were you thinking? Why am I here? And two months later, I was on a plane. Going to a 14 day retreat up in uh, Toledo, Washington. And when I think back, I have decided that there were two, two possibilities when people say, if it was so terrible, why did you do it? One is if I look at that photo, I have a big smile uh, on my face. I'm smiling and maybe I wasn't, maybe I had some glimmer of understanding and some glimmer of connection but with hearing dharma and the possibility of a mind of peace. And maybe in the immediate moment I was so overwhelmed with my own physical discomfort and my own thoughts about it that I wasn't paying attention to that beginning connection with the pleasure of hearing the possibility of peace. So that's one possibility. And the other is I remember doing my walking meditation, going back and forth in the living room of this home, in front of a fireplace, a stone fireplace, and on the mantelpiece, on top of the fireplace, there was a redwood burl, such as you would buy in a state park, you know, those polished redwood burls that someone has etched a phrase into, and they say, Sisters of Friends Forever, or Home Sweet Home, or something like that. There was a redwood burl, and it said, Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And I walked back and forth in front of that for the weekend. And I like to think that it was part of my conversion experience that I thought to myself on some level that got through to me. That uh, on some level I understood life really is difficult. And the response to knowing that really is really the, 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 the crucial center of Dharma understanding. Knowing that, how can we be anything but kind?
1: I'm speaking with Sylvia Borstein. She's the author of Happiness is an Inside Job Practicing for a Joyful Life. If you'd like more information about the work of Sylvia, you can contact her website, Sylvia Borstein, that's Borstein.com. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Sylvia Borstein, and Sylvia is the author of Happiness is an Inside Job, Practicing for a Joyful Life. And that's what we're talking about here, how we can do that. And Sylvia, uh, the three areas, of uh, effort, mindfulness, concentration, I think it might be useful to go back into those and talk about what that actually means.
2: I'd love to do that. They are, again, the middle three steps in the Eightfold Path. And uh, I've presented them in uh, in this book as if they're three separate steps, but the truth is that they, like all the path steps, are integral to each other. The truth is that uh, it's not possible to be mindful to have a clear view of what's happening moment to moment, which a clear, balanced view of what's happening moment to moment, which is what mindfulness is, unless there's a degree of concentration in the mind to give it stability. And, uh, there isn't, uh, it isn't possible to have a degree of concentration in the mind without having made some effort to cultivate that concentration and uh in truth, there isn't uh, uh the possibility that that effort were arise would arise if there wasn't some uh wise understanding about a mind that has equanimity in it is able to then manifest itself with kindness and compassion that creates the end of suffering and the beginning of happiness. so they're integral to each other. but I've written about them. As if they're three separate parts, because you can explain them a little bit better that way, and I can tell good stories about them that way. So, um, I tell about, uh, wise effort as being, uh, well, very close to how the Buddha described wise effort. It's clear in the descriptions in the, in the scripture that wise effort is noticing the presence in the mind of, uh, Um, salubrious factors, the presence in the mind of wholesome factors of kindness, of goodwill, of peace, of equanimity, and keeping them there. Noticing the presence in the mind of, or the non-presence in the mind of those wholesome factors and deciding to cultivate them. That's two of the four parts. The other two parts are noticing the presence in the mind of unwholesome um mind states like anger or greed or lust and making uh, the decision to work on putting them out of the mind and noticing the absence in the mind of those unwholesome mind states and deciding to keep them out. So that's the scripture de- uh, uh, definition of it. And uh, I sometimes think that the wise effort is the undersung hero of the eightfold path because we talk a lot about mindfulness and concentration but i think so much depends on the moment of effort just as my, i said earlier the moment in which i say sweetheart you're in pain you have to do something that's a moment of recognition followed by a moment of wise effort you have to do something do it i think sometime uh, about um you know the ad from Nike Running Shoes? Yes. It says, just do it. Just do it. And sometimes I think, well, maybe we can just skip over the concentration of mindfulness. Just do it. I had this funny moment uh, where I was walking up. Uh, I tell about this story, but I'll tell it here. I was walking up the hill at Spirit Rock. Our uh, dining room is down at the bottom of the hill, and there's a considerable hill up to the meditation hall. It takes about two or three, four minutes to walk up. So I'm walking back to the meditation hall after a meal, and uh, often I am doing meta phrases just as a, a habit, because it's my habit. May I feel contented and safe. May I feel protected. So I'm walking up the hill, and instead of my formal phrases, I hear that my mind is singing a song out of the... Uh, 1940s, probably. I don't know how many people remember this. Do you remember this, Michael? It starts, um, Look for the silver lining When era cloud a. Appears in the blue, do you remember that? I don't. You don't? Remember somewhere the sun is shining, and you can make it do the same for you if you will look for oh. So I'm walking up the hill and I'm thinking, this is it. Thirty years of practice and then back to the totally banal. <laughs> 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 I know all kinds of elegant metaphrases. I can do them in poly, I can do them in English, I can I can even do them in French, and here I am singing. But really I think in some way it's a summation of what a right effort is. Because somewhere look for the look for the silver lining, look for the space around this disagreeable moment in your mind, in your life. And re- it's, it's the same as we talked about earlier, my editor reminding me things pass. Remember that this is part of the context. You know what I think about? I think about the fact that, uh, do you know those new television screens Where if you push a button on your hand control, you can get a little screen over here so you can check the score of this football game while (laughs) watching that football game. If you, you know, if you really need to, if it it makes a difference what's in this football game and that football game in terms of playoffs. I have two, I think we all have two screens in our mind. I have the big screen that's playing life on this planet going on. And this little screen over here playing the story, the saga of Sylvia's life. And I think it's like that with everyone. They have their own personal saga. And it's important to have my personal saga because I have to, I'm an actor in that. So what I do makes a difference. But if my personal saga fills up the entire screen, which it does sometimes when it's overwhelmed, both with, uh, something that it's very excited and happy about and something that it's undone by, it, often precludes being wise in my action seeing things in the context of this is one story it's temporal all of this is around it seeing the bigger context allows me whatever's going on in my box to be wiser about it I'll tell you a story this happened uh, not so long ago I was teaching a uh, at a retreat in uh, Mexico in Zihuatanejo and it was a uh, combined retreat. It was a yoga and meditation retreat. I was a meditation teacher. And uh, people did two hours of yoga practice led by my friends who were yoga teachers. And then I taught meditation and people did meditation practice. And uh, in between uh, the morning practice and the afternoon practice, people went to the beach and... Uh, and uh, kayaked and swam. It's a different kind of a retreat from those of us who are used to a very strict kind of monastic retreat. And they talked to each other. On the fifth day of that retreat, it was a day in which we had suggested to the retreatants that they take a day of silence, not talk to each other, just have the experience of 24 hours of silence. And uh, my friend Susan, who was a retreatant, was standing knee-deep in the surf on what looked like a calm surf day and by herself. And all of a sudden, a wave, unexpectedly strong, picked her up, threw her over, and landed her on her ankle. And she knew in a moment that something really bad had happened to her. It was really painful. And she had the wit to sit herself up, and uh, with feet facing out into the ocean and wait for the next three waves to pick her up and carry her back to the shore and helped herself back and then waved her arms and shouted and called attention to herself and very quickly all the people on the beach both people in the retreat who knew her and people not in the retreat who didn't know her rushed to help her and picked her up and lay her down on a, a chaise under a tree and Somebody said, I'll get you ice for your ankle. And when they got to the cold drink concession, put ice in a plastic bag. Someone else brought a towel to cover her. Someone else was wiping her brow. Someone else called 911. And she said, I'm so sorry to, you know, this is our quiet day. I'm so sorry to make a fuss. And everybody said, no, no, don't even think about it. Take a breath. You're going to be fine. We'll take care of you. Everybody ministering to her. And pretty soon the paramedics came and needed to put her on a uh, gurney to carry her up several flights of winding stone staircases from where the beach was to where the road was and the ambulance was. They strapped her all in and tied her in and carried her so carefully up to the ambulance. And I went along with her to see her uh, safely into the ambulance. And just as the ambulance people were getting ready to close the doors and drive off with her, uh, she looked over at me, and the topic of that morning's Dharma teaching had been, see if you can find a context large enough to make your experience more uh, manageable. So she looked over at me, and she smiled, and she said, you know, this is the best first experience I have ever had about, of being rescued by paramedics. And we both laughed for a minute because she was reprising that morning's lecture. And I said, you know, I'm going to teach this tonight. She said, I hope you do. And I got out and I did teach it that night and people did really appreciate it. Um, uh, and truth to tell, um, uh, in the next several months, and certainly through her trip home the next day and all of that, and in the next several months, it took a long time for her to get better, to fly to New York and several planes and get her surgery and rehabilitate herself. There were lots of moments in which she was uncomfortable and unhappy. But by her report, in those moments when she was able to make a larger frame on the experience of the moment, the experience of the moment was mitigated in some way. And I really think that that practice of saying, okay, this is my story now, but the largest story, which she could tell me then and afterwards, is the the immediate story is my ankle is broken. The large story is that people are kind. People will take care of you. Things pass. We get better from broken ankles. There are lots of things that we don't get better from. All over the world, there are people who will take care of other people. There are stories that make the difficult stories more manageable.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that's absolutely true. That's been true in my life. That's happened a number of times. Mm-hmm. I think it happens in many of our lives where we, where someone will emerge and, and it's like, whoa, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's a special moment. Yeah. Uh. Yeah.
2: It doesn't even have to be so terribly dramatic, you know. I find sometimes that my mind may fall into some um, unhappiness about something and I'm telling myself a story over and over and over again. Uh-huh. Or it shouldn't be like this, it should be like that. Why is it happening this way? Yes. And then I'll come around a corner and there'll be an, an enormous display of flowers in someone's lawn that they've really cultivated. And it's so beautiful. And you know they've put all this work into and it's created this extraordinary art. In that moment, your heart says, "Wow!" And then the whole grumble that was in there falls away because the grumble is, is 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 as permeable as anything else. It's essentially empty, and it only keeps going as long as you're feeding the grumble. True. <laughs> that would be a great title of a book sometime. Don't feed the grumble. <laughs> right,
1: right. Uh, You're listening to the voice of Sylvia Borstein. She's the author of Happiness is an Inside Job, Practicing for a Joyful Life. If you'd like more information about the work of Sylvia, you can go to the New Dimensions website and check the link there. And her website is also Sylvia Borstein. That's B W O R S T E I N dot com, Sylvia dot com. And we're going to continue our conversation with Sylvia in just a moment. And stay with us. Uh, My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Sylvia Borstein, and she's the author of, among other books, It's Easier Than You Think. And that's funny, you don't look Buddhist and pay attention for goodness sake. And happiness is an inside job, practicing for a joyful life. And we're talking about that. That's what our conversation is about. And Sylvia, um, mindfulness and concentration. So practicing that, how do we do? What what what, what's the story behind that?
2: Well, uh, really, uh, mindfulness—the ability to think clearly, to notice clearly in any situation what's actually true here. Uh, Because sometimes we focus in and we get a skewed view. We all see through a certain kind of a grid. Uh, To know that we're seeing through a certain kind of a grid, and to be able to acknowledge the grid and work around it seems to me so crucial in my life. I'm I, I'll tell you a story about the grid one of the grids that I think is installed in me. But uh the concentration part comes along with it because they are integral to each other, really, that in order for the mind to be steady enough to see what are the components of my mind, it needs to have been steadied by uh detaching itself from the zillion irrelevant things that are happening in my mind to what's happening right now. And so all the concentration practices in any meditation lineage that I know about ask people to focus on one neutral thing over and over again. Often it's the breath because the breath is always present. Uh, sometimes people think about uh, mindfulness meditation is being breath meditation, and it's actually awareness meditation that uses the breath uh, if the breath is not problematic, if people don't have breathing compromises. Because the breath is neutral and predictable and actually soothing if you bring the attention to it. And it stops all the stories. We can actually say the stories which are always in the past or in the future, you know, going over or rehearsing. Uh, that stops the stories. If we could tell people, if we could tell ourselves, stop the stories, what's actually happening, that would be great. But the mind doesn't do that. So you have to give it something else to do to stop the stories. So being with the breath, or we tell people, let's do walking practice back and forth and back and forth. It's not to become better walkers or to walk in a certain way, but to bring all the attention into the sensations of the body so that we will then be able to say, okay, what's true now? what's actually happening. Mindfulness is about what's actually happening, what's happening in my body, what do I feel like, uh, so that I can distinguish. And my mind is not separate from that because the feelings that we talked about, I'm angry or I'm upset or I'm needy or I'm yearning, they all have body cognates. So what's happening in my mind and body at this moment and what would be a wise way to respond to it. So mindfulness really is the noticing in a balanced way, moment to moment, what's happening. And the best description, that one that I really love, is uh, one that was offered by a man who was called, his religious name was Nyanapanaka. It was uh which means uh, monk, Nyanapanaka. Mahatera, actually, because he was a very, very senior monk. He died at 98, I think. In Sri Lanka, he was the uh, head of the Buddhist Publication Society for many years. And he was born in the early 1900s in Germany. And finished university and went to Sri Lanka and became a monk and wrote some wonderful things. The reason I'm telling you the whole story is because his description of mindfulness practice sounds uh, sounds like he grew up in an European household in the early 1900s. He said uh, practicing mindfulness is like tidying the mind. He said you wouldn't want to go into your living room if it was all messy. And there were things all over the place and you tripped over them and there were no place to sit down. And I'm visualizing in my mind a Victorian living room full of bric-a-brac and lots of overstuffed chairs and lamps that could easily fall over and that they might easily have no place to sit down or you certainly couldn't find what you were looking for because it would be hidden behind something. But if it were arranged beautifully... Then and you knew where everything was, it would be very hospitable and you'd want to go in there. So I love that image because I talk to people about the practice of mindfulness, which is just, in a relaxed way, naming to oneself, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. It's like saying what's in my living room at this moment so I know what's there and I won't trip over it. And there are certain furniture in the living room of my mind that uh, i think are installed in there for good when i said earlier about everybody's got a grid uh here's a brief story about that my husband and i were driving home not so long ago we came around a corner not far from our house and drove around the corner and there's normally uh two cars parked in that car and a truck and a dog that uh lives in that house and uh we came around the corner, both cars were gone, and the dog was lying down, didn't stand up, and it had its head over a paw in a, what looked to me to be a peculiar way. And I said to Seymour, stop the car. Look at that, that, you see those uh, dark marks in the street, those are, those are probably um, square of marks and uh, you see these other dark marks here those are probably blood and something has hit that dog that's why he's probably wounded he's lying with his head over his paw and his people aren't here and we have to stop and check out this dog Someone more said the dog is just lying there I said no 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 he always stands up he always wags his tail and the cars aren't there we have to go back now what's the matter with you I said we have to go back so we go back turn around, we drive back, we drive into the driveway, dog stands up, wags its tail, it's fine, they say hurry up, get back into the car, let's go to get out of here before anybody comes here and finds us in their driveway, so we drive off, and I thought about that a lot, because he teased me about it, he said, you know, we're going to stop for every dog, but the mind puts together things according to the furniture in its mind, the way it sees things, so that my mind, to put together what it thought was swerve marks and dark marks and a lying down dog and missing cars and made a catastrophe out of it. That's the furniture of my mind. I have that kind of mind. Now, I'm i am actually, I don't think I got that furniture from any memory that I can remember in my mind. Maybe it's karmic, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe my idea that uh, the, it's a story that uh, there will be a catastrophe and I will be responsible for it. Maybe that's not even the piece of furniture. Maybe I'm misrecognizing the furniture. Maybe i it's a furniture that means there might be a person or a thing or a being in trouble, and I'm looking for it. Why do I have to make it pathologic furniture? Maybe it's actually a good piece of furniture. But it's good for me to know that it's furniture. And I'm not obligated to so far to check every lying down dog in the world, but to look at my furniture and say that's what there that's what motivates me. Let's assume it's that uh that that the uh, more pleasant uh interpretation of the furniture but to know everybody's mind got furniture I have furniture that says people are going to like me people mostly do or I have furniture that says uh 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 celery isn't particularly tasty, and uh, I wish it wasn't in this food. And I have other furniture that says, I like Mozart. And it came with the machinery. It came with this body. But to know that, to know that those are not universal truths, they're just my furniture through which uh, experience gets filtered as it comes to where I need to make a decision about action. And to know that that's just my furniture and everybody's got a grid. And so when so-and-so is a little grumpy or aversive, I can think to myself, that's my friend so-and-so operating through their aversive grid. This is my friend so-and-so <laughs> operating through their uh, delusive grid or whatever it is. Everybody's got furniture.
1: Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about the dog and stopping, and that I've I've learned with experiences like that where where I may be waiting for someone who may be Taking their time or be late or whatever, and and I go into a place where um, that this is this is because uh, the universe is helping me not be in a certain place where something bad could happen, and in other words, it's, uh-huh. it's it's preventing, and so it's a way for me to rationalize to 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 make it a positive.
2: See, I'm so impressed, Michael, with that. That's a great story. See, when someone is late and I'm waiting, I am imagining that some catastrophe has happened to them and what steps will I take? Not not dissimilar to the lying down dog. I'm very interested in your furniture. If we could do mind ectomies, I would change my <laughs> <Mindectomies> furniture. <laughs> <is> great. <laughs> I would change my furniture for yours, but mm-hmm. alas, or <laughs> praise be, I think we get born well, with furniture. It doesn't work all the time, but I, but it does
1: work most much of the time. It works I just sort of go in this place because I because I have the, I have a tendency to like oh, just you know it's like I can go there that oh, you know, yeah. but as I stop myself and I say, okay, hey. You know, this is for a reason. This is happening because it's preventing you from, it's saving you from something else.
2: See, I think this is a great, it's actually even a great way for us to end this conversation because I think it's the insight that everybody's got furniture. Here is my guideline. Not so much am I present in this moment, but can I love in this moment? Uh In this moment is my capacity for caring connection available to me. That's my. That's
1: well, that's the question.
2: That's my. That's my central practice. If people say, "What are you mindful of?" I, I, I do you go around all day doing meta blessings? No, not all day. Do you uh, monitor your breath all day? No, I don't. But I really hope that what is my organizing principle throughout the day, throughout my days, is: Am I in this moment? Um, is my capacity to connect with care? with compassion, with friendliness, with appreciation, is that available to me? Is my heart alive in this moment? So heart-mind. That's my mind, heart. Mindfulness of the presence or absence of my capacity for caring, and if it's there to nourish it, and if it's not there to retrieve it.
1: Well, it's been wonderful being with you once again. I had a really good time. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Sylvia Borstein, and she's the author of Happiness is an Inside Job, Practicing for a Joyful Life, published by Ballantine. And if you'd like more information about the work of Sylvia Borstein, you can go to Sylvia's site, which is Sylvia Borstein, that's S Y L V I A Borstein, B-O-O-R-S-T-E-I-N.com, SylviaBorstein.com. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3205.